loving sairam and greetings from prashanti nilayam this is the second of my talks on the vedas as i told you last time my basic aim in this series is to first give you a broad flavor of the vedas and then hopefully take you through a journey across the vedas as they enter a man's life that part would come a little later right now i am in the process of setting the stage for what is to come later in this talk i intend to say something about the vedas themselves given my limited knowledge of the subject i shall of course confine myself to just the basic and elementary aspects let me make an auspicious beginning with what swami has said about the vedas this is what he says and i quote the vedas are the most ancient among the world's scriptures they are a vast storehouse of wisdom manu has declared everything is derived from the vedas the vedas are immeasurable unrivaled and filled with bliss the word veda is derived from the root word vid which means to know knowledge of the supreme is veda end of quote The Vedas consist of hymns thousands and thousands of them they represent an ocean to which countless and unknown sages have contributed going back to a period when there was only the spoken language and no script the hymns of the Vedas represent thoughts and revelations that came to the sages of yore during their meditations these revelations were in the form of hymns which the sages transmitted to their disciples thus it was that they were passed from generation to generation for centuries all this happened entirely by word of mouth the written version of the vedas came much later thus the growth of the vedas is like a series of small streams joining to form tributaries that feed big rivers and the rivers all finally merging into the ocean this analogy is very apt because the water that the streams get is from rain and the source of rain is really the ocean in the same way the revelations that the sages had were from the divine and the ocean made up by the collection of revelations that constitute the vedas is also divine I must pause here to make a few important comments. The first is that the Vedas exist in the form of chants and the sound aspect is therefore very important. The Vedic hymns must be chanted properly and there is a significance to the chant which the late Paramacharya of Kanchi explains as follows and I quote Vedas must be chanted with grandeur so that the sound can be properly heard. Vedic mantras not only produce beneficial vibrations in the pulse of the one who chants them properly but also similar vibrations in those who may hear them since it is spread in the atmosphere the vedic vibrations ensure well-being here and hereafter the outstanding feature of the vedas lies in the fact that the sound of the mantras by itself when chanted has a meaning apart from the words themselves which too are pregnant with significance end of quote 
the sound aspect has been preserved from very ancient times and that is something really remarkable this sound aspect is linked intimately to the words and the two namely the sound and the word together have been so intertwined that over time vedic hymns have defied corruption and mutation this is an important point and it needs some reflection let's take any language including english all languages have evolved if say an englishman who lived 500 years ago or for that matter 1500 years ago were to suddenly appear before us and start speaking i am sure most of us would not be able to understand what he is saying the words would be different and so also the style this is true of almost all languages languages invariably evolve with time and these days over even short periods but remarkably the vedic language has remained invariant over the several thousand years during which the vedas came into existence i once asked a scholar how this was possible since languages have all evolved the world over the answer he gave was interesting he said that the vedic hymns have remained uncorrupted because of the sound aspect they had a particular meter and when chanted they had a certain completeness of their own any mutation or distortion of the words would severely disturb the sound aspect and this disturbance could be easily detected since the sound aspect was dominant corruption could be spotted and eliminated immediately this is how i was told the pristine purity of the vedas has been preserved i would say that sounds plausible anyway the fact of the matter is that the way the vedas are chanted now as for example in swami's presence every day during darshan is the same as the way they were chanted thousands of years ago i must of course qualify this by adding that there are some special schools of vedic chanting but i am not considering that here rather i am confining myself to the standard method of chanting just to make myself clear let us say there is a vedic pandit from east godavari district in andhra pradesh and another vedic pandit from kerala east godavari and kerala are at least 1000 kilometers apart the respective vedic scholars in these two parts would have imbibed that tradition from their ancestors in these two widely separated regions of the country until recently these two regions did not have communication good communication between them let us say that two scholars from these two regions meet and one of them starts chanting say the taitreya upanishad the other scholar would have absolutely no difficulty in joining the first one in the recitation this is because the recitation tradition is the same for both and that is because the recitation is fixed and has remained invariant through the ages i hope you get the point if you reflect on it you would find that this aspect is unique let me now go back for a minute to the divine revelation aspect such revelations are not as rare as people might imagine and have occurred to people in various places at various times in history indeed even in science such revelations have occurred of course historians of science not recorded that way they would instant say that archimedes had a flash of discovery einstein had a flash of intuition and so on 
However, these flashes that the scientists get are nothing but the revelation of the divine. Maybe in relation to the material world, but they are revelations nonetheless. Let's get back to Swami and find out what more he has to say about the Vedas. Here is a quote. The Vedas took form only to demonstrate and emphasize the existence of God. The Veda is a collation of words that are the truth, which were visualized by the sages who had attained the capacity to receive them into their enlightened awareness. In reality, the word is the very breath of God, the Supreme Person. The unique importance of the Veda rests on this fact. Because the Vedas originally existed only in sound form, they are sometimes referred to as Shruti. In scriptures, Shruti means that which is heard. The real reason for giving the name Shruti to the Vedas is that the cosmic vibrations which are inaudible and which cannot be seen were heard by the meditating sages as sound. And this is what they memorized and transmitted to their disciples. This is one of the reasons why the sound aspect is given so much importance. They were actually heard as sound by the meditating sages and these sound came from the original cosmic vibrations. Because the sound aspect is important, great stress is laid by the teachers of Veda on the correct pronunciation of the word and the intonation while chanting. Listeners who have heard the extended Vedic chant by students before Swami would be able to appreciate what exactly I mean. The ancients of India devised elaborate recitation drills so that through the ages the chants would remain the same without mutation and corruption. This is something remarkable and I am not sure if there is any other comparable example. Let me now say something about the structure of the Vedas. It is usually said that there are four Vedas. Yes, there are. But do you know that this classification came after several thousands of years? Before that, it was, shall I say, a period of discovery. Revelations came to people belonging to different times and these were encapsulated into Vedic hymns. There were thousands and thousands of hymns, but unfortunately most of them have been lost in time. What has survived is only a small part. Even so, they are not only grand in themselves, but tell in their own way the story of the evolution of human thought. I shall come to that aspect a little later, but for now, I shall stay with the topic concerning the structure of the Vedas. Today, we recognize four Vedas. The Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, the Yajur Veda and the Atharvana Veda. Apparently, it was sage Vyasa who made the compilation and classification of Vedic hymns in this manner. It is customary to identify in each Veda three portions known respectively as Samhita, Brahmana and Aranyaka. The Rig Veda has its own Samhita, its own Brahmana and its own Aranyaka. The same holds for the other three Vedas also. Now, what do these three portions signify? Why this division? That is the question I shall address next. In a sense, the three portions are indicators of the evolution of Vedic thought. The word Samhita 
means that which has been collated, collected and arranged. The Samhita portion of a given Veda contains the mantras belonging to that Veda arranged in a systematic manner. These mantras comprehensively convey the main objective or purpose of that particular Veda. The Vedic mantras that we often hear come mainly from the Samhitas. Turning next to the Brahmanas, these spell out how certain rituals ought to be performed. And this is what Swami says about the Brahmanas and I quote, The Brahmanas constitute an important part of the Vedas and deal with the correct procedures for performing rituals like the Yajnas and Yagas. Being ceremonial rites for acquiring mundane pleasures, such ceremonies, however, cannot offer Atmananda or the pure bliss of the Atma. They can only enhance sensory enjoyment and provide Epicurean pleasures which are intrinsically transient. The search for pure abiding bliss of the Atma led the ancient rishis to the solitude of the forest. End of quote. Well, this last sentence of Swami leads me in a quite natural fashion to the Aranyakas. This word Aranyaka is derived from the word Aranya which means forest. Thus, the Aranyakas are sometimes referred to as forest books and with good reason. As already pointed out in the quote from Swami, neither the Samhitas or the Brahmanas ask a person to give up everything and retire to the forest in order to contemplate on God and focus totally on spiritual development. They stick to chanting the mantras. No doubt chanting mantras from the Samhitas does promote some purity of mind. But where spiritual development is concerned, they can take a person only so far. The Aranyakas have a different objective. They are meant for people who wish to reach higher levels of development through intense contemplation and the meditation of the Supreme One in His most abstract aspect. The famous Upanishads come at the end of the Aranyakas and represent the quintessence of Vedic knowledge. As Swami puts it, ancient sages have communicated the spiritual wisdom revealed to them through the Upanishads. Well, this is a sort of a brief introduction to the Vedas and it now enables me to comment on the evolution of Vedic thought. If one goes carefully through the Vedic text that spans the ages, one can see a clear line of evolution of thought. The very early hymns are in the Rig Veda, and they not only express ancient man's sense of wonder, but also reveal how he identified specific deities like Indra, Agni, Vayu, and so on, with the forces of nature. About all this, Swami says, and I quote, the very first experience in Indian thought is the thrill of wonder. This is expressed in the hymns or riks found in the Rig Veda. The riks are all about the deities or the devas like Indra, Varna and so on. End of quote. From this we see that the very early seekers did not straight away understand Brahman, the ultimate and all that. Like people elsewhere, the ancients of India were also struck with wonder about nature and all the forces that formed a part of nature, like thunder, lightning, wind, rain, etc. They also understood, 
perhaps in their own imperfect way, that there was a subtle synergy between the various agencies of nature that promoted the sustenance of life on earth. Everything from the ant to the elephant was seen as a part of some mysterious cosmic cycle. And so, the very first thoughts related not only to the inevitable sense of wonder, but also to an important question of logic. If there were forces in nature, there ought also to be agencies that control these forces. It is these agencies that were identified as devas, and the ancients imagined that there were different devas in charge of different departments, shall I say. And all these different devas were given different names like Indra, Agni and so forth. This is what I would call the first level of thought in a long evolutionary process. It's interesting in passing to note that the Greeks also went through almost a similar thought process. As would be recalled, the Greeks too had a god of fire, a god for this, a god for that and so on. In fact, tribes everywhere had their own spectrum of deities or spirits, be it in Africa or North America. What this shows is that ancients everywhere had the implicit belief that there was something in the universe more than what could merely see with the eyes and experience with the senses. This is an important point. Having decided that there were devas who controlled the various aspects and forces of nature, the next task was to worship the devas and perform various rituals to propitiate them. Thus it is that the rituals came into existence almost soon after the devas were accepted. Listeners may recall, for example, that Emperor Dasaratha performed a ritual called the Putrakameshti Yagam for having children. By the way, this ritual is sometimes performed even these days by the childless. So, the first step in the evolutionary process was to identify devas and worship them. In due course, the more intensive of the Vedic seekers decided to probe further beyond the devas and they concluded in the first instance that there must be an overlord for all these deities. The deities, they said, were like viceroys and there must be a rex or a king who ruled over these viceroys. Thus it is that they convinced themselves about a power superior to the deities and that power was called God. Now arose an issue, whom to worship. Some said, worship the deities for particular favors and worship God who ruled them when the deities were unable to deliver the goods. Thus, in ancient India, many started worshipping Varuna, the god of rain, when the monsoon failed, but prayed to the god who ruled Varuna when they wanted progeny or cure from illness and things like that. This is like going to different counters in a bank when one needs different kinds of service. At this stage, some thinkers said, Hey, wait a minute. Let's examine this business in some more detail. They did and came up with an answer that is best illustrated by using the analogy of a bank. Just go to say the main office of the State Bank of India in Prashanti Nilayam during the working hours. You will find that many customers are seated with the, man with the manager 
often these are people from overseas who have big deposits in the bank they may have things that they want to do like withdrawing some money getting some foreign currency cash making new deposits and so forth actually for every such activity there is an assigned person in the bank and a counter where these transactions could be condu- conducted yet the vip customer gets all his job done simply by sitting with the manager in the same way profound vedic thinkers in ancient india came to the important conclusion that indeed all the favors one wants can be granted directly by god and there, there was no need to separately take up these issues with the devas or deities in short step by step the vedic seekers realized that there is a supreme one who is beyond this world beyond the universe in fact and beyond space and time too the seekers also realized that the supreme one who was beyond space and time itself could not be described in words and could not be cognized by the mind also i'm sure we have all heard many people quote this vedic phrase yato vache nivartante aprapya manasacha this phrase refers to something that is beyond description and even thought space time is like a curtain that divides the creator from the creation creation is on this side of the curtain while the creator in all his absolute and pristine glory is on the other side of the curtain so to speak in short slowly but surely the seekers were zeroing in on the existence of the curtain and the presence of something supreme beyond that curtain that something is god whose children we all are irrespective of race religion creed or nationality in this sense the vedas are universal and it is for that reason that swami makes it a point to draw attention to the vedas and not because they are indian in origin to repeat the vedas focus on a mystical eternal something that is beyond this world beyond this universe beyond space and time itself and is changeless it is that something beyond words and even the mind that the vedic seers were in quest of and with good reason too indeed across the ages seekers elsewhere too have been engaged in this very quest though by different means you may be surprised to hear this but actually einstein was one of them and he gives expression to this beautifully explaining why he pursued science einstein once said and i quote a knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate which only in their most primitive forms are accessible to our minds it is this knowledge and emotion that constitute true religiosity in this sense i am a deeply religious man end of quote einstein tried to catch a glimpse of cosmic infinity through science while the seekers of the age, vedic age sought that very same eternity via the path of devotion and spiritual inquiry i will have more to say about the vedic concept of god and all that later but for now let me for the record mention that in addition to the four main vedas there are many supplementary units and texts these include six vedangas and four upangas the word anga means a limb thus the vedanga represents so to speak 
a limb of the Veda, while the Upanga represents a subsidiary limb. I shall not go into the details concerning all these, they are too much. But I must mention one important Upanga and that is the Puranas. The Puranas are important because they cater to the masses. The late Paramacharya of Kanchi has this to say about the Puranas. I quote, The Puranas can be called the magnifying glasses of the Vedas as they magnify small images into big images. The Vedic injunctions which are contained in the form of pithy statements are magnified or, or elaborated in the form of stories or anecdotes in the Puranas. End of quote. This is an important point. Take Satya for example. The importance of adhering to Satya, come what may, is wonderfully exemplified by the story of King Harishchandra, a story which until recently used to be regularly performed as a drama in villages all over India. This is how ordinary folk learned the importance of abiding by truth. I have myself seen unlettered villages in Tamil Nadu say, Na Satyatika Katupatavanga, meaning, I am bound by truth. I mean, these were poor villagers who did not know anything about Vedas or Upanishads, but they knew truth had to be adhered to. We should also not forget that it was one such village drama depicting the story of Harishchandra that made a profound impact on Gandhi when he was a young boy, making a difference not only to his own life, but in some measure to humanity as well. I think it is best for me to bring this talk to a close with a quote from Swami. This is what Swami says about the Vedas. Quote, The Vedas teach man his duties. They describe his rights and duties, obligations and responsibilities in all stages of life as a student, householder, recluse and monk. In order to make plain the Vedic dicta and axioms and enable all to understand the meaning and the purpose of the do's and don'ts, the Vedangas, the Upangas, the Puranas and the Epictus appeared in course of time. Therefore, if man is to grasp the significance of his existence and his own reality, he has to understand the importance of these later explanatory texts also. End of quote. I guess that places the Vedas and all the supplementary compositions like the Vedangas and Upangas in their proper perspective. In my next talk, I shall attempt to give you a glimpse of one of the interesting Upanishads. So I shall bring my talk to an end at this point and like last time, maybe I could leave you with a bit of Veda chant from our sound archives before this program formally ends. Jai Sai Ram. ಸಪ್ತಪರ್ಯಂತೆ ವಿಶ್ವಾರೋಪಾಚಸ್ಪದರ್ಬಲಾಸ್ಪದೇವೇನಮನಸಹ ವಸಾಸ್ಪದ ನಿರಾಮಯ ಮಯ್ಯೇವಾಸ್ತು ಮಯೇ ಶ್ರುತ 
ಇಹೇವಾಭಿವಿದಾನೋ ಭಯಾತ್ಮೇಯಿವಜ್ಜಯಾಚಸ್ಪದರ್ನಿಯು ಮಯ್ಯೇವಾಸ್ತು ಮಯೇಶ್ರುತ ಉಪಹೋತೋಚಸ್ಪತಿಪಾಸ್ಮಾಸ್ಪದಿಕ್ವಯತೇ ಮಹಿಮಾಶ್ರುತೆ ನಿರಾಶಿ ವಿಮಾಶರ ಪರ್ಜನ್ಯಂ ಭೋರೇಧಾ ವಿಮಾಶ್ವರ ಪೃಥಿವೀಂ ಭೋರೇ ವರ್ಪಸ ಜ್ಯಾಕೇಪರೇಣೋನಮಾಶ್ಮಾನಂದನ್ವೃಧೆ ವೇಡುರ್ವರೆಯೋರೇರಪದ್ವೇಷಾಂಸ್ಯಾಗೃಧೆ ವೃಕ್ಷಯ್ಯಗಾವರಿಷಸ್ವಜಾನಾನುಸ್ಫುರ ಶರಮರ್ಚಂಚೃಭು ಶರೋಮಸ್ಮಜ್ಜಾವಯಿದ್ಯುಮೀಂದ್ರಾತಿಷ್ಠಾಧಿಜನಂ ಏಗಂಚಾಶ್ರಾವಂಚಾಂತ